Now we're continuing our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's important that you open your Bible and you follow along. Uh, it's relatively easy to find. You have uh, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good." Amen, and we know God will bless the reading of his own inspired word. When I was at school in fifth year, there was a, a guy, uh, a boy, who was always, well, we used to say in Bangor, I don't know if you have this expression in Ballymena, on the beak. Do you have that expression? He used to always mitch off school. He used to skip school, miss school. And uh, the school inevitably, uh, eventually, uh, and inevitably correct, uh, connect, uh, contacted his parents to confront their wayward son. When asked what he had been doing, he said he had been speculating on the stock market with his dinner money. Uh, his parents were furious until they realized he made over £1,500. And he never did come back to school. And today, as far as I'm aware, he's a multimillionaire. He took the little that he had, a few bob, he cast it upon the waters, and after many days, it came back to him greatly increased. He invested almost recklessly in the future, and his investment multiplied to him in return. Now, that's what Solomon is telling us here in chapter 11. At the beginning of chapter 11, he is telling us to invest in life, to invest in the future to speculate in order to accumulate. Now, he's speaking about us spiritually rather than materially, but he uses the material to illustrate the spiritual, the same principles apply. He is urging us to launch out in faith with God. Uh, he is telling us uh, that life under the sun, as previously described, is boring, it's monotonous, it's perplexing, it's difficult, but now, he says, life with God in the picture is exciting, rewarding, fulfilling, if we invest in it spiritually. Now, he tells us three things about this spiritual investment. He tells us something about the way of investing in the future, hindrances to investing in the future, and then the reward from investing in the future. So, first of all, then the way uh, of investing in the future. Solomon urges us in these verses to spiritually invest for the future. He tells us three things about that investment. 
that we must be bold, that we must be generous, and that we must be diligent. Invest, he says, boldly, generously, and diligently. So first of all, be bold. Look at what he says there in verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. Now, commentators are a little divided on the precise illustration that Solomon is using. Some feel that he's referring to an agricultural method, uh, which was quite common in uh, dry countries where irrigation was used, that you would flood the field, you would float the seed on top of the, the, the water, and when the water receded, it would be washed into the ground, and eventually it would produce uh, a crop. Now, I'm not convinced about that interpretation myself. I think it's a reference to Solomon's uh, international trading. In 1 Kings 10 and 22, we're told that the king had a fleet of treasure ships at Tarshish, which is in Spain, at sea with the fleet of Haram. Haram was uh, the king of uh, Lebanon, of Phoenicia, uh, and they were in partnership together. Once every three years, it returned uh, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and peacocks. He filled these ships, you see, with the produce of Israel. He sent them out to trade around the Mediterranean, and three years later, they returned with their treasures. And it seems likely that that's what Solomon is alluding to. I sent out my ships full of things to trade, and after many days, they came back to me. He is using that as an illustration when it comes to spiritual investments. He says there, there has to be a, a bit of entrepreneurship, a bit of holy recklessness, a bit of radical risk-taking when it comes to your spiritual life. Throw caution to the wind, he says. Push out the boat. Launch out in faith. You cannot always uh, calculate uh, the return on your investments beforehand. There needs to be a little bit of boldness, holy boldness, when it comes to the things of God. You remember uh, in the parable of the talents that Jesus taught in Matthew 25 that those who are commended are those who took risks with their investments, and the one who was criticized was the one who was ultra-cautious and buried his one talent in the ground. That spirit of holy, reckless risk-taking is what is being commended here. That spirit that led Abraham uh, to go out not knowing where he was going. That spirit that Moses displayed when he began to lead the people of God when he was 80 years of age. That spirit that David displayed when he went out to face Goliath armed only with a sling. Some thought Goliath was too big to hit. David thought Goliath was too big to miss. That spirit of Daniel who dared to stand alone and defy the king's decree. That spirit that brought the uh, people of God back from captivity in Babylon to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That spirit of Peter and Paul who went throughout the known world, even to Rome itself, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ which resulted in their ultimate execution. That spirit that Paul uh, commands in Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, where he says he almost died risking his life 
for the gospel. That's what's being commanded, taking risks for God. That spirit that drove Kerry to India, Livingstone to Africa, and Taylor to China. That's what's being advocated here, being a venture capitalist when it comes to the kingdom of God. Now, we have to say that most uh, churches and most Christians are the very antithesis of this kind of thing. So often believers exude a spirit of caution and and they cringe and they uh, uh, worry about investing in the, the, the future. You know that joke, how many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? One and twenty to share the experience. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Presbyterians, they never change. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? It takes a deacon's meeting, a member's meeting, and two and a half years. We, we don't like change. And Solomon says, be bold, be brave, be reckless, take risks for the kingdom of God. One commentator paraphrases what Solomon says here, take the loaf out of the freezer and make a few sandwiches. How often the advance of the kingdom of God has been hindered by an overly cautious spirit, and individually as well. I was reading in John Wesley's journal where he wrote on uh, June the 8th, 1741. For two days I have carried on an experiment which I have often been pressed to do. I decided I would speak to no one concerning the things of God unless my heart was inclined or the opportunity came. The result? I spoke to no one for 48 miles. I went to sleep with no burden, and I had much respect among men. Oh, Solomon says, don't be like that. Be brave, be bold, be bullish. Take risks when it comes to the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing then, be bold. The second thing he says is you've got to invest generously. Look at what he says there in verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even eight. Now you will know in the Bible, seven is the perfect number. And that little phrase, give a portion of seven or even eight, seems to be a Hebrew euphemism for saying, be, be generous, be generous. Don't just give seven, but keep going even beyond the number of perfection and give eight. He is telling us to give and give. And after we have exhaust, exhausted our resources, to give again. You don't stop with the one or two or the five or six, or even at the number of perfection itself, seven. You don't stop there. You go beyond that. You see, the highest expression of love is sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this, said Jesus, than he laid down his life for his friends. The very nature of love is to spread itself at the feet of another. And if we truly love God, we will be generous when it comes to our resources, and when it comes to ourselves. We will be bold. We will hold nothing back. Michael Eaton says in his commentary, the wise man will invest everything 
in the life of faith. He will invest everything in the life of faith. Were the whole realm of nature mine? That would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And you might say, well, you know, I'm not rich. Or you might say, I'm too busy. Well, join the club. We're all busy. We're all busy. Every one of us is busy. But it's a question of priorities. It's, it's, it's putting him first when it comes to spiritual investments. The wise man is a generous investor spiritually with his time, talents, and his resources. He holds nothing back. He's at the prayer meeting. He's witnessing at work. He's faithful in church. He's diligent in prayer because he loves God. It's a question of priorities. He is generous because he realizes something of the importance of investing spiritually in life. So Solomon says, be bold, be generous. And then he says, be diligent. Look at what he says there in verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. The temptation, you see, when it comes to these spiritual investments is always to slow down, to soft-pedal, and to give up. As Paul says, uh, talks about being uh, weary and well-doing. Solomon says you must never go, give up. There is no room for rest. He says, so in the morning and in the evening. Every day has a, a morning and an evening, and you've got to so uh, continually, digi- uh, diligently, uh, uh, finding opportunities, seeking or, uh, opportunities from morning to night. Never reach that place, he says, of, of rest, relaxation, or retirement. That could be how that phrase is understood, that every life has a morning and an evening. And it may be that he's saying, don't you think that when you've reached 65 that your work is over, that's it finished, that you're uh, uh, now redundant? That's the very, maybe the very time, he says, that God blesses your efforts. There has to be this continuous, diligent investing throughout life. William Gladstone became prime minister for the fourth time when he was 80. Lord Tennyson wrote Crossing the Bar when he was 80. John Wesley still preached when he was 88. Michelangelo painted the uh, Last Judgment when he was 66. Well, says Solomon, that ought to be true of us spiritually. In the morning when we're young, yes, we come to God with the flower of our youth to offer to him. But when we're old, we still are offering ourselves up as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable and pleasing unto him. That's Solomon's advice when it comes to investing in the future. Be bold, take risks, be generous. Don't hold back. Don't be miserly when it comes to spiritual investments. And be diligent. Whatever time of life you're at, never stop giving. Are you investing in that way, young person? What are your your priorities in life? To finish your education, to get a good job, to make money, to buy a house, to find a partner, to settle down, to be comfortable. What about Christ? Or middle age? Your priorities are to pay the bills. You're struggling so often just to make the mortgage payment, to keep your head 
above water, to raise your children, to give them a good education, to be promoted in work? What about Christ and investing for him, an older person, to take life easy, to sit back and relax? What about Christ? It's 22 years since John Piper preached that famous sermon where he moved a generation through his preaching. Don't waste your life. And that that uh, sermon came about through an article in the Reader's Digest about this uh, couple, Bob and Penny, who had retired down to Florida and were spending their retirement uh, on their 60-foot yacht and collecting seashells. Collecting seashells! And people are perishing and going to a lost eternity and you're wasting your time collecting seashells. What are you going to do with your life? Do you want your life to count for eternity? Do you want to stand before God and say, I collected a thousand seashells? Or I influenced this one for Christ. I influenced this one for the gospel. I influenced this one and that one in their faith. The way to invest in the future, be bold, be generous, be diligent. Hindrances to, secondly, investing in the future. Of course, um, there are things to impede us and distract us when it comes to this entrepreneurial skill. And he, he, he tells us three ways in which we can be paralyzed when it comes to making spiritual investments. First of all, we can be paralyzed by inevitability. Look at what he says there in verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, um, they empty themselves on the earth, and a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where it falls, it will lie. This is a kind of excuse. Whatever will be, will be. If the clouds are full of water, then rain will come. If a tree falls to the north or to the south, there's not a thing you can be, uh, do about it. It will fall in whatever direction it falls. There are certain things that are out of our control and beyond our control. And of course, that's true. There are things that we have no control over. And that doctrine of the sovereignty of God can be a great comfort, but can also become a great excuse, an excuse for inactivity and a lack of responsibility. Sometimes people excuse and cloak unspiritual attitudes under theological terms. I remember quite seriously somebody telling me that since the elect are the elect, that there's no need to be too concerned about evangelism because whether we do it or not, God's purposes will be fulfilled and the elect will be saved. He was excusing his inactivity, his lack of investing in the future, of casting his bread upon the waters on the basis of inevitability. It will happen anyway. Now, that kind of thing makes the doctrine of the sovereignty of God an ugly thing. I believe passionately in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and I believe passionately in the doctrine of election, but I also believe in human responsibility. 
that God holds us accountable and responsible for our actions and indeed our lack of actions. I once met a girl who was very seriously ill, actually, and she was refusing medication on this basis. Since God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, she said, uh, he has sent this illness to me and I shouldn't try to change it with medication. I simply should accept it. But we have got to understand that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. That sense of inevitability that uh, uh, drives us to this conclusion that we can't do anything about a situation, so we just lie back and think of England is not from Scripture. That is not the teaching of the Bible. It's the teaching of the Quran. It's fatalism. The Bible teaches us the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but it, it tells us that God's purposes are executed through means. It teaches human responsibility. We are to cast our bread upon the waters. We are to believe, uh, we are to pray, believing that God uses our prayers. We are to witness, believing that God uses our witness. We are to go on mission, believing God uses mission. We are to give, believing that God blesses our giving. We are to call upon the name of the Lord, believing that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We mustn't use the doctrine of the sovereignty of God as an excuse for our lack of commitment and concern about the lost. Well, that's the first um, hindrance then that can paralyze us when it comes to casting our bread upon the water, paralyzed by the inevitable. Secondly, Solomon tells us we can be paralyzed by uncertainty. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, you have two types of people in this world. You have optimists and you have pessimists. Now, the optimist always looks for opportunities, but the pessimist always sees the difficulties. To the optimist, um, the glass is always half full, and to the pessimist, the glass is always half empty. Now, Solomon tells us that this pessimism can be a great hindrance to spiritual investment. The person who watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks to the clouds will not reap. If you're always looking out for the problem and the difficulty, you'll never do anything and you'll never go anywhere. You've got to see the difficulties not as hindrances to advance, but stepping stones on which you advance. Now, if I ask you what you are, an optimist or a pessimist, I wonder how you would respond. I, I, I think I'm a, a cloudy kind of person. I think I'm a a pessimist, and I was reminded of this last week when somebody asked for my address uh, to pass on to somebody else, and I thought, oh no, what is that person going to complain about? What, what have I done? What have I said? And, uh, and sure enough, three or four days later, the letter came through the door, and it was a card thanking me for my ministry. And, and my pessimistic spirit was banished, but not permanently. <laughs> um, and we're, we're all like that, aren't we? We, we look for the, the, ne the negative. 
Ezekiel tells us without vision, the people perish. Helen Keller, you remember the Australian girl that was blind and, and deaf, and then her teacher came in and taught her sign language and so on, and she was able to com communicate, and she was unlocked from that world of isolation. She says there's one thing worse than not being able to see, and that's being able to see but having no vision. Being able to see but having no vision. And people are like that. They won't hang out their washing in case it rains. They won't apply for a new job in case it's not secure. They won't sit an exam in case they uh, uh, um, fail. And we can be paralyzed when it comes to our spiritual work by that negativity, by that pessimistic spirit. I'm reminded of Adoniram Johnson, that great quote, that missionary to Burma, from first foreign missionary from America. And he said, um, our future is as bright as the promises of God. Hindrances to spiritual investments, inevitability, uncertainty, and thirdly, what we might call ignorance. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, verse 5 could be translated in two ways. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the, the word, Hebrew word for spirit and wind is exactly the same, and the Greek word actually for Hebrew, uh, for wind, uh, in, the word in Greek is actually the same too. It's the same thing. So it could be translated um, in both ways. So if you're using the NIV, it translates, verse 5, you do not know the path of the wind, and then the second half is disjointed, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb. Um, uh, the uh, ESV uh, links those two things together, translates the word as spirit, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You see what he's saying? Uh, there are some things that you do not have any control over that you're ignorant of. You don't know how a baby is formed in the womb. Now, you know the mechanics of it. You know that the egg is fertilized and the, it begins to divide and uh, multiply. But can you explain how the bones are formed in that baby's body, in that fetus's body? Can you explain that? Can you explain how the vital organs are formed and how they begin to function? Now, with ultrasounds, we probably know more about that than Solomon ever knew. We, we don't know how that happens. You can't explain new life. It's, it's miraculous. It's wonderful. It's, it's glorious. But you don't know. You haven't an explanation for all of that. It's a mysterious work of God. It is He that knits us together, as the psalmist says, in our mother's womb. That's what he says at the end of verse 5. You do not know the work of God who makes everything. You are ignorant of that. But does that ignorance stop you? Does it stop you getting pregnant? Does it stop you having children? Does it stop you having a family? No, even though you're ignorant of that process, it doesn't stop you procreating. 
Now, you see what he's doing. People will come and say, well, I can't do that. I can't get involved in that because I, I, I'm just a simple Christian. I, I don't understand all of that. I'm not theologically. I'm not well-versed in Scripture. I don't know my spiritual ABCs. Well, you, you should, and you should be giving yourself to that. You should never be content with your ignorance. But that shouldn't paralyze you and prevent you from doing something for God. People are paralyzed by their own ignorance. Well, Solomon says, you don't understand procreation, do you? You don't understand how a baby is put together in the mother's womb, but you still have children. Just get on with it, he says. Just do it. Nike, just do it. Just do it. Just get on with it and invest uh, in the work spiritually. So here are three hindrances to spiritually investing in the future. Uh, inevitability, uncertainty, and one's ignorance. And then lastly, the reward for investing uh, in the future. In these verses, Solomon promises a reward for this kind of spiritual investment. Look what he says in verse 1, "'Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days.'" He promises that those who launch out in faith, those who spiritually invest in the future, will get a return for their investment. Now, of course, that is not a blanket promise, because if you go down to verse 6, you will discover that uh, not uh, all the activity was blessed. In the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be, be good. Sometimes you, you give yourself to someone or to something, and there's no return whatsoever. You open your heart, you open your life, and you feel hurt and rejected, and you feel that you've been kicked in the teeth. When Solomon sent out his ships uh, for three years, when they returned, maybe some were lost, some were shipwrecked. Success was not always guaranteed. Jesus said, as we were thinking last week, sometimes um, to the disciples, sometimes you need to shake the dust from your sandals, and you need to leave people to their ignorance. You don't cast your pearls before swine. That's a fact of life. That's a reality. Not everyone will respond to you. Not everyone will accept you. Not everyone will be happy to see you. But what Solomon is saying is this, there will be those who will be touched, will be affected, and, uh, and, and we will have influence over, and that's a great promise. Now, the results aren't always immediate. It may take many days until it comes back to us, but it will come back to us, so we need to be patient. And so often we don't labor diligently, we don't cast our bread upon the waters because we don't see immediate results and we are discouraged by the lack of immediate results. I remember preaching in a church a number of years ago and it was a very difficult, I thought a very cold and hostile environment. And years later I met a man who told me that he had come to know the Lord at that particular service. I remember speaking about a, at a youth fellowship about um, this very subject, about commitment and yielding all of your life uh, to God. And 
a young man, uh, years later, while in the pastorate, came and told me that he, God had called him at that particular weekend. One of the nicest experiences I ever had was at the Shepherds Conference this year in America. And um, at the Shepherds Conference, they, they really spoil you, and there are all kinds of stalls that you can get um, eats and treats uh, all day. And I went up to a, a juice bar, and they had... Um, Stephen Curry on the badge, Ireland, Ireland. And I asked a, a girl for a juice, and she said to me, you're not from Ireland, you're from Northern Ireland. Well, there's not many Americans can make that distinction. You're, you're from Northern Ireland in terms of accent. And anyway, she was certain. And then she said to me, are you Stephen Curry? And I said, well, well I am. Then she started to cry. She said, you spoke at a youth conference five years ago and I came to know the Lord at that, that conference five, five years ago. And she was marrying a seminary student, and they were heading out to Italy together as, as missionaries. As missionaries. Val English tells a story of preaching at a coffee bar in, in, uh, in Port Rush, and he said it was a cold, uh, dismal, uh, November evening, and the, the young people were very hostile. There was one particular fellow who came in and, and was just uh, brutal in his treatment and the abuse that he gave to Val. And then when Val became a lecturer at the college, this fellow turned up, uh, Matthew Murray from Bershane, and he was converted, converted at that coffee bar and Val knew nothing about it. He's just retired after serving 33 years as a pastor in one church in Australia. Never knew anything about it. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles quickly just to Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Paul says, And let us not grow weary of well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's the problem, isn't it? We want to give up. We will reap in due season if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Never give up, Paul says, because in due season you will reap. I was reading in one of the commentaries, Philip Rankin's commentary in Ecclesiastes, and he tells the story uh, of this man, let me get the name right, of Luke Short, who at a hundred and three, one hundred and three, was sitting in a hedgerow in, in Virginia, just thinking about his life, a hundred and three. And he was converted by remembering a sermon that was preached 83 years ago by John Flavel in England, one of the Puritans, before he ever left England. And on his tombstone it read, Here lies a babe in Christ, age three, who died according to the flesh, 106. He heard John Flavel preach that sermon 85 years before. Something was triggered in his mind, and he came to faith. Never, never despair when it comes to casting 
your bread upon the waters because the reward, the reward will come in many days. It will come back to you. The way of investing in the future. Be bold. Take risks. Be generous. Don't hold back. Be vigorous day and night. Hindrances to investing in the future. We can be paralyzed by inevitability, by uncertainty, and by ignorance. And then the reward of investing in the future, in many days it will come back to you. Now, maybe I'm speaking to somebody this morning, and you're not a Christian. You're not you're not converted. And you have all these questions and all these things that hold you back. You, you, you plead ignorance. I, I don't understand it fully. I don't, don't have a grasp of this. I don't feel the Spirit working upon me in the way that I should. And you've come for uh, uh, just full of excuses this morning. And, and Solomon would say to you, launch out in faith. Take a risk for God. Cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Yield yourself up to Jesus Christ, and you will see ultimately the rewards coming when you enter into glory and, uh, and throw your crown before the throne uh, uh, of Jesus Christ. Take a risk. Give yourself to Jesus. Be a spiritual risk-taker when it comes to the gospel and give yourself to Jesus Christ. Amen.